You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generations Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of New Generation Thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinker Scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Brenda McGeever, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Helen, for inviting me to be here. It's great to talk to you. So what was the social landscape of Russia then during this time? Was there a large class divide? Uh, Was there oppression of labouring classes that led to turmoil or conflict? So the Russian social formation, late imperial Russian society, was a society fraught by tremendous inequalities, gendered inequalities, class inequalities, and ethnic uh, domination as well. So if we just start with class, Russian society was composed significantly of of a peasant population, a rural labouring class, which was poor and which had a long, long tradition in Russian society. But crucially, at this late imperial revolutionary moment, at the turn of the century, a new social class begins to emerge in society, the proletariat. And these workers, of course, are actually peasants who are migrating into the cities to work in these emergent new factory conditions, which are also tremendously oppressive and difficult to live and work in. And the significant thing about the Bolsheviks, they predicted that the proletariat would become the kind of historic class in Russian society. Even though they composed only of a fraction of the population, they believed that the proletariat had a kind of historic mission to take Russia towards socialism. 
So this was a, a political project, if you like, of Bolshevism, which tried to bring the peasants and the workers into political struggle to bring down the autocracy, the, the czarist regime. So is this how the Red Army was formed? And who, who, were the, who was the Red Army formed of? So the Red Army was initially formed after the Bolsheviks came to power from a group of volunteer workers. Lenin, the leader of the Bolshevik party, believed that the Bolsheviks could win the ensuing civil war. There was a civil war that broke out after the Bolsheviks came to power in October 1917. And Lenin believed that if a revolutionary section of the working class could volunteer to build a revolutionary defence of the nascent Bolshevik government, then they could secure that power. But very quickly, he and, and the other members of the Bolshevik leadership realised that a standing army would be required in order to secure that power. So if you're in Western Russia at this point, the Red Army is likely to be composed of workers. However, in Ukraine, for example, where I did a lot of the research for this book, the Red Army was composed of partisan, guerrilla, peasant volunteers who may even have been anti-Bolshevik the week before, but had now moved over towards the Bolshevik Red Army. So they often moved between different rival military forces. So it was a much more unstable political base on which to wage the revolution in Ukraine than, say, the Red Army that was stationed in Petrograd, which was composed of much more reliable working-class forces that the Bolsheviks knew and trusted. So, you know, who is a Red Army soldier? Well, the answer to that question very much depends on the region and the context in which we're talking about. So at what point was anti-Semitism exposed? Do you think this led to the rise of the Red Army or was it after the Red Army were established? So anti-Semitism had been dominant feature of late imperial Russian society. It was deeply enculturated into the social formation. We can think of it in terms of religion. There was a religious dimension to anti-Semitism. It was state-sponsored by the Tsarist government, which was in power until February of 1917. And it existed in the popular press. It took a political form with explicitly anti-Semitic political parties and political movements emerging at the turn of the century. So by the time the Bolsheviks come to power, anti-Semitism is like a, a bubbling pressure point, if you like, in Russian society. And the revolution unleashes that tremendous force. And what happens is actually after the Bolsheviks come to power is an unprecedented wave of anti-Jewish violence in which all sides participate in, though significantly the violence is carried out by anti-communist and anti-Bolshevik forces. So what we see in the Russian Revolution, this eruption of anti-Semitic violence, is something that has a long history that is a consequence not only of the immediate instability of revolutionary society, but also it has its moorings in late imperial Russian society, as I said, in the kind of cultural, economic and political conditions that gave rise to it. There are both short-term and long-term factors that lead to its shocking and emergence in the context of the revolution. The really interesting thing about this is that the revolution comes to be seen in the anti-Semitic projection, in, in the kind of trope of, of the period, the revolution comes to be seen as a Jewish revolution. So there's 
around this time, the formation of the Judeo-Bolshevik trope. This is the idea that, that all Bolsheviks are Jews or all Jews are Bolsheviks. And the political right used this as the trump card to attack the revolution. So the White Army is the largest military force that emerges to try to stop the revolution. And anti-Semitism is a significant weapon that it uses against the revolution. And in the literature on this subject, anti-Semitism is indeed understood as a form of counter-revolution. And this is how Lenin described it at the time. I guess what I tried to do in my book was to show that actually anti-Semitism was also present on the political left as well. And this posed great difficulties for the Bolsheviks as they struggled to contain this issue. So is this around the time that these pogroms were established? What were they exactly? So... Pogrom is a kind of interesting word, actually. It's one of the few Russian words to have entered into the English vocabulary. And it derives from the Russian verb gramit, to plunder and to destroy. And there were actually three significant pogrom waves in Russian history. The first of these was not in 1917 and 1918 and 1919 in the Russian Revolution. The first, rather, was in 1881, there was a wave of anti-Jewish pogroms and then a second wave during the 1905 revolution, between 1903 and 1905. So by the time the Bolsheviks come to power, the pogroms are something of a repetition. This is the third wave of anti-Jewish violence that Russian society has seen. And the, the main features of the pogrom are widespread looting, destruction of property and slaughter, murder of Jews. And each wave is more significant and more extreme in each of these areas. So by the time the Bolsheviks come to power and this ferocious wave of anti-Semitism storms through the former Pale of Settlement, the, the region where Russian Jews live, we're talking basically about the most significant assault on Jewish life in pre-Holocaust modern history. Around 100 to 150,000, perhaps more, Jews were murdered during these pogroms. And so the Bolsheviks are really dealing with a quite unprecedented degree of anti-Jewish violence. And this, this was a really defining moment in East European Jewish history and East European Jewish life. And the reason that we don't know more about it, in fact, today is largely because it was overshadowed by what took place 20 years later in the Holocaust. Yeah, I was going to ask if that was the case, that it was over, overshadowed by the Holocaust. Absolutely. It's not, you know, it's not popular knowledge, this level of violence in Russia. Absolutely. And the shocking thing is, Helen, is that the pogroms that, that took place in the Russian Revolution would be the very same territories where the Holocaust was carried out in the occupied regions of the Soviet Union just 20 years later. So this, in many cases, was survivors of the Civil War pogroms being murdered two decades later by their same neighbours in the same territories. So it's, it's a shocking repetition. And this has led some scholars of the pogroms to describe them not only as genocidal, but as a precursor to the Holocaust. So you mentioned um, you mentioned the Ukraine, but who were the other sort of anti-Semitic forces at play that have arguably more impact than the Red Army? I mean, we're talking here about civil war, so it tends to be military forces that, that are carrying out, not only, but significantly it's military forces that are carrying out this violence. Uh, the, there was a study done in the early 1920s by the Yiddish scholar Gergel, 
who looked at 30,000 fatalities, a fairly high sample size, and calculated that about 40% of the atrocities were carried out by Denikin's army. This was the White Army. Uh, Denikin was a, was a general who led an army to try to stop the Bolshevik Revolution. This was largely pro-Tsar, a kind of restorationist project, which was Russian nationalist and was nostalgic about the pre-revolutionary society. On the other hand, there was Petlura's army, who was a Ukrainian nationalist leader. So he was, he of course was based in Ukraine and his army was responsible, Gergel calculated, for around 17 or 18% or so. But a significant number of the pogroms were carried out from below, from peasants, from neighbours, small guerrilla detachments that were just seized the opportunity, saw the political vacuum and interpreted it as a green light to carry out and enact tremendous anti-Semitic violence. So the pogroms in that respect were many-sided and heterogeneous and you know, we run into trouble when, when, when we try to impose uniformity upon, upon them, which of course makes the work of the historian all the more difficult in this area. What was the Bolshevik response to anti-Semitism that was so rife? Was it in support of the Jewish community or did they sort of bury their heads in the sand? It's an in, a very interesting question. And so the, the first thing to say is the Bolsheviks had a standpoint of opposition to anti-Semitism, which stretched way back into the late imperial period. In fact, from the very beginning, the Russian socialist movement in the shape of the Russian Social Democratic and Workers' Party was opposed to anti-Semitism. And this was a very important decision that it took in the late imperial period, because actually some of the radical left in Russia had been ambivalent about the pogroms, especially the Russian populists, the Narodniki, who predated the Bolsheviks, some of them saw the pogroms as an opportunity for the awakening of the masses, as they put it. You know, the Russian masses had failed to arrive on the historical stage and now suddenly they appeared in the shape of pogroms. The pogroms were regrettable, but were nevertheless an opportunity uh, to turn the masses, not just against Jewish capitalists, but all capitalists. These were the deeply problematic uh, responses from Russian socialists and radicals that were in play, say, in the 1870s and 1880s. By the time the Bolsheviks come onto the scene in the early 20th century, they have a much more rigorous opposition to anti-Semitism, which they see as a distinctively counter-revolutionary phenomenon. They see anti-Semitism as a weapon that will be used not just against Jews, but against the revolution as a whole. Which takes me back to your question, you know, did the Bolsheviks oppose anti-Semitism to protect the Jewish community? Well, yes, but when you look at the historical record after the October Revolution, you find that often the main motivational driver in Bolshevik opposition to anti-Semitism was that it was seen as a threat to the state, that it was seen as a threat to the revolution and and therefore had to be opposed as a counter-revolutionary activity. Whereas when some Jewish socialists opposed anti-Semitism, they framed the issue somewhat different, differently. They framed it as an attack on Jewish life. So you see different kind of interpretations and conceptualizations of anti-Semitism at play. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that, is that this leads to different types of anti-racist responses. 
So the Bolsheviks sometimes see this in instrumentalized ways, whereas Jewish socialists have a much more kind of ethical urgency, a kind of ethical imperative that undergrids their response to anti-Semitism. It's literally a question of life and death for them. Whereas for some Bolsheviks, it's a question of life and death for the revolution. So I spend quite a bit of time in the book trying to uncover some of this complexity. And if I could sum it up very quickly, the Bolsheviks are opposed to anti-Semitism, but the move from standpoint to actuality, the move from being opposed to something to actually articulating a consistent campaign against it, that move from standpoint to actuality was often made and sustained by a group of Jewish socialists who were actually non-Bolshevik by origin and had come from the Jewish non-Bolshevik left, but joined the Bolsheviks after the revolution. So I spent quite a bit of time talking about the significance of that for how we understand the history of anti-racism in the context of the revolution. So do you think that, I mean, we talked about obviously the, the Holocaust, but do you think that this had a wider global impact you know, not just with Nazi Germany, but elsewhere, in, even in the West? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing to say is that the Russian Revolution is a global event. It's an event that sends shockwaves across the world. There are huge, I mean, here in Britain, there are huge protests in support of the revolution, especially the February Revolution of 1917, which led to the overthrow of the Tsar. And not only does the revolution begin to have significance across the world, but the revolution's kind of promise of a world free, not just of class exploitation, but of gender and, and racialized forms of domination, those too have resonance across the world. And the Bolsheviks' promise of a world free of racism, in particular, reaches a really global multi-ethnic audience. It reaches the Harlem Renaissance, for example, where the Jamaican-American poet Claude McKay hears about the Bolshevik record in opposing anti-Semitism. And it's this, actually, that leads him towards Bolshevism. He ends up going to the Soviet Union in 1922 to take part in a, in a major communist conference uh, in the Kremlin. There's a wonderful photograph of Claude McKay standing in the Kremlin giving his speech. And other African-American radicals similarly were drawn to Bolshevism, both because of its promise of liberation against inequality, but also its promise to rid the world of the scars of racism. And it was the Bolshevik record on anti-Semitism that played a crucial role in helping to spread that message across the world and including to the West itself. And in most countries in the world, communist parties are formed after the Bolsheviks come to power. So the Communist Party of Great Britain is formed shortly after the revolution and similar formations emerge in many, many other countries across the world. And there's an attempt to bring these organisations together through the Communist International, uh, which was a kind of global gathering that took place in the early years of the Soviet Union, which, which is written about wonderfully by your great-grandfather, of all people, <laughs> Helen. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm yet to read that, <laughs> but, but I will. Um, but speaking of which, you have um, you've written an excellent book on, on this very subject. What's it called and where, um, where can people get it? The, the book is called Antisemitism and the Russian Revolution, and it's actually just come out in a paperback. I'm not sure when our conversation is going to go online, but there's a 30% discount just now on the Cambridge University Press website. I think it, it runs until 
the beginning of December or something like that. Oh, well, perfect timing. If people are quick off the mark, then they'll be able to listen to this and then jump straight on that. Terrific. Thank you so much, Brendan. That was fascinating. Thank you, Helen, for having me on. And thanks for, yeah, it's great to talk to you today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.